I next met with Dr. Leonard Saltz to discuss GI cancer presentations at ASCO, and we began with a fascinating plenary paper on GI cancer stromal tumors. In the plenary session, they presented a study that addressed the adjuvant therapy of high-risk GIST tumors. And these were tumors that had poor prognostic features and were fully resected. And then patients were randomized to receive what would currently have been the standard of care, which is one year of imatinib versus continuing imatinib for three years. And the finding in a nutshell was that continuing the imatinib for three years led to a statistically significantly, and I would argue clinically significantly improved overall survival and disease-free survival. What I found really striking about the study, when you look at the curves, is that somewhere in the four to six month period after imatinib is stopped in each arm, you start to see a worrisome drop-off. And so it's not sort of what I want to see because I would have loved to have seen that shorter therapy is adequate. But I think the take-home message from this has to be that longer is better, and it truly raises the question if even longer is even better because it suggests that there is a population of cells that is kept in some degree of stasis by long-term imatinib therapy that begins to grow when the imatinib is stopped. I have to say, though, you know, for adjuvant studies in solid tumors, those curves, even though, you know, as you say, there was that sort of discouraging relapse right after they stopped, they were pretty impressive in terms of the relative and absolute numbers. Oh, absolutely. I hope I didn't imply otherwise. I think they're quite impressive. It's just that, A, I would have liked to have seen the opposite. I would have liked to have seen that a shorter period of time is adequate. And B, the nature of the failure pattern suggests to me that even longer might be beneficial and certainly worthy of study. I think they did correctly point out that imatinib, even though well-tolerated, to use an overworked term, does have some side effects, did require some dose modifications, and that that needs to be considered in terms of what we're going to do for an individual patient. And I also think it's important to realize that what we're dealing with here is quite a highly effective drug that imatinib is in many ways a gold standard of what we would like our targeted therapies to be. So it's no surprise that it has very substantial benefit in the adjuvant setting. The surprise factor, I guess, if you will, is that it is maintaining a population of cells in long-term stasis rather than actually eradicating the disease. Absolutely. That was a real stasis-looking set of curves. And in the discussion, Chuck Blanke did something really fascinating where he took the two curves and he moved the one for the three years back two years, and they totally overlapped. Right. And you can see that even without the motion. The patterns are just so similar that it really does beg the question of indefinite therapy. Let's talk about, there were some papers presented on rectal cancer that were pretty interesting. First, there were a couple, one from the NSABP, the long-awaited RO4 study, and then another German trial looking at neoadjuvant therapy. So there are two questions that I think have been rattling around for a while in terms of the management of rectal cancer. One is, can we offer capecitabine as an alternative to intravenous 5-FU? 
And I think we can now say definitively that that is a reasonable option. Awful lot of patients, awful lot of studies, and now I think the largest one that will be done on this topic, the RO4, makes it clear that oral capecitabine is a completely acceptable alternative to parenteral 5-FU in conjunction with radiation therapy in the neoadjuvant setting. Now, my comment on capecitabine is it's the right drug for some patients and not the right drug for others. Contrary to the way some people have thought about oral therapy, I don't believe it's correct for the somewhat frail, apathetic, elderly patient. Quite the contrary, I need a patient who is going to be very involved, very proactive, and very reliable because instead of just connecting them to an intravenous infusion pump and having complete confidence of what drug they're getting, when, and how much, I'm sending them home with a big bottle of pills. And I'm saying take four of them in the morning and three of them in the afternoon and take it for this number of days on and that number of days off and hold it if the side effects get severe enough, but don't hold it if they don't get severe enough and don't miss a dose, don't double up on a dose. It's a lot of responsibility. For some patients, no problem. They're all over it, and I have a lot of confidence in those people. For other patients, it's a lot of challenge. And so I think that when we talk about individualization of care, which is sort of a catchphrase that has characterized not only this year's ASCO, but the way we've been thinking about cancer care for a number of years now, in addition to trying to get elegant with molecular characterization of the tumor, I think we have to really be able to individualize the appropriate care for the appropriate person based on who they are, what their capabilities are, and so on. I got to just, you know, interject one thing, which is, you know, I understand, you know, what you're saying, but, you know, it's not rare to hear about cases, as this has come up in some of our, you know, CME meetings of people who are not frail. They're very intelligent, bright people. And the oncologists go, well, you know, the treatment's going to be this intravenous drug we're going to give you with the radiation therapy. Not everybody even thinks about capecitamine. Well, I think you can say that there was some questions about whether it was just as good until now. And I think those questions are solidly put to rest. So I've said for a long time that If, as an oncologist, one is approaching every single colorectal patient the same way, that you're not individualizing enough and you're not availing yourself and your patients of all the different options. I don't think it's correct to give everybody capecitabine. I don't think it's correct to give nobody capecitabine. I think it's appropriate to consider it a fully acceptable option and to individualize care. Capecitabine does have more of the hand-foot syndrome. That is a trivial concern to some, a substantial concern to others. If somebody works with their hands and does fine detail work with their hands in some way, that could be a real problem. So I think we just need to know that the technology is available, is an option, and consider it when treating patients with rectal cancer. So how about the other part of the RO4 study and also another German study looking at the issue of oxali as neoadjuvant therapy with the fluoropyrimidine? Right. So you raise the other question that's been rattling around. Can we improve on fluoropyrimidine alone as the radiation sensitizer given concurrently with neoadjuvant radiation for rectal cancer? And I think the overall take-home message of the data is so far we can't. People have been looking for a long time for evidence of benefit from combining radiation with oxaliplatin and a fluoropyrimidine. 
And the RO4 study was thus far quite negative in that respect. The pathologic complete response rates were virtually the same in each arm. By all efficacy criteria that are available thus far, there is no benefit to incorporating oxaliplatin into the radiation component, and there was substantial toxicity. Not only just the neurotoxicity, but increase in other toxicities as well. That's consistent with two previous studies that have been presented, the STAR study and the ACCORD study, that have looked at this question. So we now have three trials that ask the question, should I give oxaliplatin with my radiation? And the answer of all of those three is no, you really shouldn't. Now, life is never so simple, so along comes the German study that was also presented in the oral session at ASCO. And it's not as clear-cut in that particular trial. It's curious that that trial actually gave the lowest dose of oxaliplatin of any of the other trials. It did not plan to look at PATH-CR, so in an unpreplanned analysis, there is a modest but statistically significant difference in the pathologic complete response rate. And both arms had lower PATH-CR rates than either arm of RO4. So do I find it interesting and a little bit intriguing? Yes. Do I think it is a rationale for giving oxaliplatin with radiation? No. I think that we don't have a perfect story, but the overwhelming preponderance of evidence right now says oxaliplatin with concurrent radiation therapy adds toxicity without benefit. Do I incorporate oxaliplatin into the chemotherapy portion of my treatment for rectal cancer? Yes, I do routinely do that. And that's just a direct extrapolation from the adjuvant colon data. Part of the problem with all of our rectal analyses is that it takes a long time to get to the endpoints that we really want to know, which is, do we improve the recurrence-free survival, the cure rate, the overall survival? And so we've tended to look at the pathologic complete response rate as a surrogate for benefit. And the EORTC data that were presented actually refute that and say that, in fact, pathologic complete response did not correlate with those long-term outcomes that we care about and really is not an appropriate early endpoint for clinical trials. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody likes it. But I think, unfortunately, that it is a factor that we're going to have to deal with as we think about how to move forward in our rectal studies. How about abstract 3511, looking at KRAS G13D mutations that followed the JAMA article that looked at the same marker, and also 3510, the prime study of panitumumab and Fulfox 4? I thought this was some of the more elegant work presented at ASCO, both in terms of the quality of the work and the quality of the presentation. And I particularly compliment Dr. Teshpar, the lead author and presenter, for her very balanced interpretation of her data. So what she was following up on is an observation that she had previously published in JAMA at the end of last year, suggesting that not all KRAS mutations are created equally. And when we look for KRAS mutations, we typically look for codon 12 and codon 13 mutations. And she became suspicious that the biologic implications of the codon 13 mutations might not be exactly the same. And the data that she published in JAMA suggested that in the refractory setting, there was some modest degree of activity 
in the G13D mutations relative to the codon 12 mutations. It's highly questionable if it's enough activity to be of any clinical significance. And correctly, the paper in JAMA said these are results that need to be validated prospectively before having any impact on change in practice. So the authors are not advocating a routine treatment of G13D mutation patients with cetuximab or panitumumab, and I agree with that. The newer data that were presented at ASCO looked at the frontline setting, taking analysis from the combined OPUS and CRYSTAL studies, looking at those patients that had G13D mutations, and looking at the comparison of those that got fulfiri versus fulfiri and cetuximab. And the finding was that the response rate was higher in this relatively small population for the cetuximab patients. The numbers were far too small for any statistical significance of differences in progression-free or overall survival, and the differences were modest. It was also clear that these patients did not do as well as a group as the patients with wild type. So what's clear is that a G13D mutation is a poor prognostic indicator. You don't want your patient to have it. Unfortunately, we don't get to pick and choose. The patients get what they get. But regardless of therapy, G13D does worse. Whether or not there's enough incremental benefit with the incorporation of an anti-EGFR agent is not established. It would not be standard practice to give those patients an anti-EGFR agent, and right now I wouldn't do it. The other point I would make, and this goes to the next study that you asked about, which is the PRIME study, it was simply a follow-up showing what I had hoped we would see and would have expected to see, which is in the KRAS-selected population, treated with chemotherapy plus the anti-EGFR drug panitumumab, that there is a statistically significant survival benefit in the approximate range of four months, about what we would have expected to see with cetuximab in other randomized studies in KRAS-selected populations. So this says if you want to treat patients with frontline EGFR agents, either is acceptable I believe that cetuximab and panitumumab are interchangeable. I think of them as Coke and Pepsi, and I don't have a preference for one or the other, but I do not use both in a patient. I use one or the other. There's no hypothesis whereby failure of one would be salvaged with treatment with the other. However, I don't, for the most part, use anti-EGFR agents in front line because the only people who benefit are patients who get a very substantial skin rash. And I have come to recognize that that skin rash is really one of the harshest things I ask my patients to tolerate. It's a very socially debilitating rash. And outside of some really extenuating circumstances, I want to save that exposure to that rash for when I don't really have other good alternatives, because I think it's a very hard thing for people to keep their lives on track with. Let's talk a little bit about gastric cancer. First, there was some data presented from the so-called CLASSIC trial looking at adjuvant capecitabine and oxaliplatin. Mm -hmm. So I think we can put this on the scoreboard as another positive trial for adjuvant therapy of gastric cancer. I think it's clear now that to operate and give no therapy in a patient who is fit to receive therapy would be substandard care. So the first study that showed us that we could do more than just operate was Jack McDonald's pivotal study 
that randomized patients to surgery only versus surgery in a combination of 5-FU leucovorin and localized radiotherapy. Subsequently, we had the MAGIC study that David Cunningham and his group pulled together looking at the ECF regimen in the neoadjuvant setting and showing a benefit. And now we have the use of CAPEOX, and I think, again, no surprise that afloropyrimidine and aplatinum are active in gastric cancer. I would be perfectly comfortable extrapolating oxaliplatin to cisplatin, extrapolating capecitabine to fluorouracil if there were some need to do so. I think that as a class effect, we can say a platinum fluoropyrimidine therapy given to medically fit patients after resection has a modest but statistically significant benefit and should be regarded as an acceptable standard. So just to close out on gastric cancer, two years ago we saw the TOGA data on the addition of trastuzumab and HER2-positive metastatic gastric cancer. And this year at ASCO, while there weren't any new efficacy data on anti-HER therapy in gastric, there were three studies, abstracts 40, 12, 13, and 14, confirming in different populations the TOGA finding that like breast cancer, maybe 20% of gastric cancer is HER2-positive. Where's your group at Memorial right now on this strategy? I think it's important, you know, for people to be aware. It's, I think, now an accepted standard practice to be testing gastric and GE junction tumors for HER2 expression, and that incorporation of trastuzumab into the therapy for those patients has been documented to improve outcome and should be regarded as a standard practice.